Chapter 18 of Gargoyles. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Gargoyles by Ben Hecht. Chapter 18. The manuscript had been found in the drawer where William Gilchrist kept his collars. It lay underneath a number of loose collars. With the death of his father, a curious love for the man had come to Aubrey. He remembered from day to day things his father had said, or seemed to say. A sad elderly man who lived secretly in his thoughts. That was his father. Like him, Aubrey now had a secret life that he lived only in his thoughts, and this was slowly making him kin to the man who had died. In Aubrey's thoughts dwelt a romantic, startling figure, a gleaming hawk-faced thunderer, a lean Isaiah of burning phrases, with an eagle-winged soul beating its way toward God. This was Aubrey Gilchrist, not the Aubrey whom life had mysteriously deformed into an advertising man, but an Aubrey triumphant, who had risen above the petty turns of fate and burst upon a world a voice crying forth astounding phrases against the evil of man's ways. The inner characterization in which Aubrey was gradually immersing himself remained a vague though warm generality. He was able to visualize the thunderer and able to enjoy the results of his genius. In his daydreams he pictured this inner one bringing the world to his feet. Books were being written about him, magazines and newspapers were filled with his praises and interpretations and men and women everywhere discussed his ascent in awe he was a conqueror a bloodless napoleon and a martyrless jesus a prophet whose genius was lifting men out of the mire what the message was which this inner aubrey was spreading through the world what the phrases were that ignited the souls of men were not contained in his imaginings. He approached them from a critical and not creative angle, his fancies presenting him with descriptive self-praises. He composed rambling articles in his mind, celebrating his triumphs. This inner Aubrey was eloquent, electrifying, unassailable. Men and women wept over his writings and repented. Cities reared statues to him, and all places sang his glories. The whole thing had begun as a game, deliberately invented to occupy the leisure of his mind. But he had elaborated on it, and it had grown almost by itself. Now it preoccupied him to an alarming degree. The manuscript in his father's collar drawer had given him a shock. He had kept it from his mother, assuring himself that such a course was for the best. It was an odd document for his father to leave behind. As he sat in his study a week after the funeral, reading it for the first time, Aubrey grew frightened. It seemed to him that he was looking at his father for the first time, that the man who had till now been a half-enigmatic figure to him stood at last in the room, strong and alive. The thing was a primitive type of novel, discoursive, gentle, Rabelaisian. 
it recounted the mental and physical adventures of an elizabethan philosopher in a succession of unrelated episodes there was a caress in the sentences a simplicity in the narrative that translated itself into cunning realism when he had finished the reading aubrey stared at his father's portrait hanging over one of the bookcases the reality of the manuscript held him he felt bewildered it had for some three hours lifted him out of the present and immersed him in scenes and amid a company of naive ancients starkly alive a dormant literary sense awakened in him the thing was a work of art as moving as authentic as apuleius or cervantes but he would put it away he hid it in a private drawer its memory however grew in his mind during his day at work the thought of the thing his father had written came to haunt him as if it demanded something he felt closer to it than he had ever felt to his father there was something distasteful though about the intimacy that was his soul he would explain over to himself he lived that way inside it was like writing a biography of secret dreams for him it's strange we're all like that even i there was something odd in father funny we never guessed it must have been written a paragraph at a time over years and years it was a sort of diary and he would recall excerpts from the book gentle skepticisms childish animalisms but the tone of the thing which he could never put into words was what haunted him most over the naive acrobatics of plot and lively preenings of idea an unwritten smile spread itself a pensive tolerance that seemed to say yes yes life has been this tale is a curious jest an epitaph over an empty grave yesterday is unreal and today is even less real yet here are fancies the ghosts of sad and happy folk who never lived and among these ghosts i once found life the idea of publishing the manuscript came to aubrey one evening when his wife returned from the theater in a curious mood she was late for dinner and this irritated him but her manner was even more irritating she was strident flushed gross her laugh as they ate made his mother frown he observed he said little when they left the table an indignation toward fanny had come to him he retired to his study fanny insisted on following him she hovered about his chair as he tried to read caressing him in a curious way as if he were a child with whom she was amused it occurred to him that she thought him a failure that there was something condescending in her manner oh leave me alone please fanny huh we're peevish dear me poor old aubrey's working too hard please but i want to talk to you i want to tell you about the matinee i'm not interested fanny you know how i hate vaudeville i love it that's your privilege don't be sarcastic aubrey 
I'm not. I'm just tired. Tired? What have you been doing? Despite herself, she accented the you. The memory of Schroeder and their day together had left her. It persisted, however, as a curious elation. The ambiguity of words exhilarated her. She felt a sense of mastery. She wanted also to be tender toward Aubrey, to please and charm him. It was necessary to do this in order to disarm him. But he had no suspicions. She was certain of that. Nevertheless, it was necessary to make sure he had none. There were many paradoxical things necessary, and most curious of them all was the necessity of showing Aubrey that she loved him. Her heart warmed toward him as it hadn't for years. She felt unaccountably grateful to Aubrey. She would have liked to sit at his side whispering love names and caressing his hair. Well, for one thing, I've been writing. He looked at her calmly. Writing? You mean books? Why, I didn't know. Aubrey smiled, recovering a superiority toward her. But his heart grew heavy almost simultaneously. She had thrown her arms about him and was exclaiming, Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad you're writing again, Aubrey, darling. I've wanted you to so much. He pushed her away slowly. She stood pouting. Now I can see where I take a back seat, she sighed. Yes, sir, you won't have time for me at all. But I don't care. As long as you're happy, darling, I'm delighted. I want you to be happy, and I know it makes you happy to write. When she left the room, Aubrey remained frowning after her. He would surprise her. He would surprise them all. He would publish the manuscript under his own name. It would create a sensation. It would bring him back in the public eye more glorified than he had been in his literary heyday. In a few days the idea had grown to obliterating proportions. For a time he abandoned the contemplation of the inner Aubrey, the gleaming-eyed thunderer. This other was nearer reality, an Aubrey hymned as a rejuvenated literary figure. But he hesitated. His indecision resulted in a predicament. He had been boasting cautiously of his new work, letting out hints as to its character. There was Cressy, a literary critic and a member of the club where he lunched. He had talked to him about it. I'm surprised myself, he explained. I was rather uncertain whether I could come back. But the rest was evidently just what I needed. The book isn't at all in my old style. More direct, sincere, and entirely simple. You'll like it. Cressy became important in Aubrey's predicament. Cressy was a man whom Aubrey identified as the more discriminating public. He yearned for the approval of this public, and as his decision to have his father's manuscript printed under his own name grew, Aubrey sought the critic out. It was pleasant to boast to Cressy, to feel oneself part of the superior literary world Cressy inhabited. 
Cressy had left the university with the determination to write. He had, however, developed into a scholar, using a knowledge of Greek and Latin to acquire a baggage of classical erudition. For ten years he had been contributing literary essays to magazines and newspapers. In these he wagged his head sorrowfully over the decline of letters. He presented an impregnable front to all new writers. The names of new novelists in the book lists irritated him precisely as the names of new celebrities in the society columns had once irritated Mrs. Bazine. He resented them as intruders and focused a pedantic wrath on them. In his own mind he pictured himself as being in a continual state of revolt against the inferiority of modern literature. His attacks, however, were entirely a defensive gesture. His literary point of view was inspired by a heroic desire to annihilate contemporary literature. Contemporary books were an insult and a barrier to his egoism. He battled against them. His struggle was the quixotic effort to assert the superiority of his erudition. New novels, new poetries, new philosophies were a conspiracy to minimize him, and he went after them with the zeal of one engaged in tracking criminals to their lair. At forty-five he was a stern-faced man with a graying mustache, heavy glasses behind which gleamed indignant eyes. He was impressive-looking. People who never read his fulminations still felt a high regard for his scholarship. He was fearless in the pronunciation of French, Latin, and Greek names, and invariably functioned as arbiter in all disputes concerning classical quotations and allusions. His friendship with Aubrey was based chiefly on the certainty he felt that Aubrey was an inferior writer. He was not part of the conspiracy aimed at the minimization of Cressy, the scholar. "'Well, I'm glad to hear that, Aubrey,' he congratulated his friend. "'Very glad. Writing is a delight few people understand these days.' "'I know, and I think you'll be interested particularly, John, because the story is of Elizabethan England.' I've modeled the technique on Apuleius and the other later Roman tale-tellers. Indeed, Cressy bristled. That should be interesting. I'd like to have your opinion of it, John. I've always valued what you say, but this time more than ever. Because I feel I've entered your field and you're guarding the fences and all that. Cressy's face relaxed quite right. His field. And if the book was any good, he could leap forward as its authentic champion, and through it denounce the base modernism of the day. But how did Aubrey, who was a superficial dabbler, come by Elizabethan England? Aubrey promised to produce the manuscript within a few days, and left the club. A July sun hammered at the streets, the heat added to his inward discomfort. It was too hot to think, yet it was necessary to think. Something was piling up, and unless he thought it out clearly, it would fall on him. 
he had made up his mind to publish his father's manuscript as his own but in the weeks that had passed he had become aware that he was not going to carry out his intention there were things that kept him from it a morbid sense that his father was watching him had grown in his mind he was afraid at night in bed he conducted himself with a scrupulous politeness toward his wife certain that his every action was being observed by his father there was another restriction the appearance of the manuscript with his name to it would be a distasteful anticlimax. he had lost himself so long and so ardently in the creation of an inner aubrey the hawk-faced isaiah redeeming men that the prospect of a frankly sensual volume signed by aubrey gilchrist made him uncomfortable in the face of the realities that would ensue the praise for instance of the healthy animalism of the book he would have to abandon the secret characterization that had grown almost an essential of his life he could not go ahead redeeming men and lifting them toward a life of asceticism while people were talking and writing about the fact that aubrey gilchrist was a sensual realist and finally there was a feeling of dishonesty inseparable from his fear of his father but adding its weight to the restrictions as the feeling that he would never dare to publish the manuscript approached a certainty aubrey sought to force his own hand by telling his friends of the book boasting of it and promising its early appearance in this way he dimly hoped to make it socially necessary for him to produce the volume and that finally the social necessity of living up to his announcements would overpower the inner restraints he was desperately throwing up bridges in the hope of being driven across them the dilemma slipped out of his mind as he walked toward his home it was distasteful the finding of the manuscript had in fact upset him more than anything which had ever happened as he neared his residence a wilted sensation came into his thought he had been trying eagerly to recover the full image of the inner aubrey and derive a few hours of surcease in the easy contemplation of that great hero's triumphs but now it occurred to him that judge smith and john mckay his partner fanny and her relatives and all his world were buzzing with gossip about his return to literature the dilemma crawled wearily back into his mind yes they talked about it whenever they came together there was basine the judge he had seized aubrey's hand and pumped it heartily when he heard of the book that's the stuff i like a man who can come back go to it aubrey basine was a bounder the way fanny and the rest of them idolized him was disgusting his mother-in-law oh the judge told me the most fascinating things about the situation in washington and then for an hour an idiotic mumble about what the judge did what he said what he thought what he hoped nobody ever mentioned henrietta or the children as if their existence was not only unimportant but dubious basine was an entity he needed no background 
Aubrey wondered why his thought turned to his brother-in-law. Whenever he felt uncomfortable, or found himself in a distressing situation, his mind usually busied itself with comment on Basine. Anything stressful that happened, no matter how remote from the judge, always seemed to remind Aubrey of the man, and recall to him the fact that he was a bounder and an ass, and entirely unlikable. He entered his home in a dejected mood. Voices attracted him. Fanny was talking to a man. He paused before the open door. "'Oh, hello, Aubrey,' Fanny greeted him. She stood up. Aubrey noticed she looked pale. Her eyes seemed to follow his observation. "'Isn't it hot enough? I'm almost dead. I'm awfully glad you came home. You remember Mr. Ramsey, don't you?' "'How do you do?' said Aubrey. "'Yes, I think—' at mother's long ago i'm sure you met him he's an old friend of the family how do you do sir ramsey echoed rising the men shook hands aubrey stared at the dapper high-strung figure with its flushed face and cool attire and tried to remember the man if you'll pardon me he smiled certainly aubrey "'See you again, I hope,' said Aubrey. Ramsey assented with a curious enthusiasm, assenting the situation uncomfortably. Fanny frowned and watched her husband walk to the stairs. As his steps died, the two returned to their chairs. "'Oh, it's hot,' Fanny murmured. "'Can't you go away till next month? I'm almost beside myself.' Her voice was low. Ramsey listened with disdain. "'And besides,' she continued in a whisper, "'I've given you all I can get. I haven't any more money.' "'Money,' Ramsey snorted. "'I'm not talking about money. I'm not asking for any.' He stood up and frowned indignantly at her. "'I know, but—' I just dropped in for a talk. He said this with a meaning smile and lighted a cigarette. He was very casual. She watched him helplessly. Oh, why beat around the bush? I'm sick of it. I can't stand it. How much do you want? I've given you three thousand. Surely that's... I don't want any, thank you, he answered with mysterious sarcasm. Not a nickel. "'Then what do you want?' Her voice was rising, despite her fear of being heard. "'This is the fourth time you've—you've you've hounded me.' "'Oh, I hound you?' Again the mysterious sarcasm. "'If you'd only tell me what you want.' He smiled with the air of a man phenomenally at ease, and returned to his chair. "'Nothing, not a thing.' I just dropped in for a chat, that's all. His eyes regarded her triumphantly. Fanny returned their gaze. He was crazy. There was something crazy about him. He had called her on the telephone the day after seeing her in the hotel with Schroeder. She had gone downtown to meet him. 
the whole business seemed like an impossible dream in retrospect he had whined and begged for money he was down and out living from hand to mouth his friends gone his clothes in rags he had known her father she could save him and he had never once referred to the incident in the hotel lobby neither had she the conversation had been purely a needy friend and a philanthropically inclined woman she had asked him how much he needed and he answered fifteen hundred dollars would start him a week later he came to her completely rehabilitated an elderly-looking fop swinging a cane and bristling with enthusiasms another fifteen hundred dollars had increased his enthusiasm he came a third time to report that he had found employment she barely listened something had happened to ramsay now as he sat smiling sarcasms at her she realized what it was her knowledge of the man was casual but the thing that had happened was unmistakable he no longer wanted money from her he was blackmailing her merely because it gave him a sense of power they had never mentioned schroder or the lobby incident she regarded him in silence and the understanding of the man slowly nauseated her his polite and affable smiling his cockiness and his suavity all these were part of a pose he called merely to see her wince and because her wincing filled him with this sense of power and he would go on like that but she dared not challenge him he knew about the day with schroder he had never mentioned it and now he tried to pretend that his dominance over her had nothing to do with blackmail or schroder he tried to pretend it was because of something else something involved and mysterious are you going to stay forever she murmured perhaps for dinner he answered fanny sighed there was her mother-in-law a stone-faced woman with gimlet eyes old ferreting eyes she would sense something and if they found out she shuddered her eyes implored please tom she whispered you you're torturing me oh no not at all he answered with an idiotic cheerfulness raising his eyebrows and pursing his lips in surprise he was like a farce actor she stood up and came to his side her hands rested on his shoulder won't you leave me alone she whispered again i feel ill he looked at her with concern indeed he said i'm awfully sorry he would go on like this forever it would always grow worse he wanted to make a victim of her he was like a crazy man with an obsession his suavity and politeness almost made her scream she covered her face and wept there there he consoled her she had dropped into a chair and he was patting her back it must be the heat the heat don't you think oh well i'll go away now 
Are you going to be home Tuesday evening? She made no answer. Ramsey stood watching her, a smile in his eyes. As she continued to weep, he appeared to grow more and more elated. A sternness entered his voice. Come now, he ordered her. Sit up. She obeyed. It's ridiculous, he continued. She nodded helplessly. I'll see you Tuesday evening, he added. There was a pause. Then, there's something I'd like to discuss with you. Very important. Don't forget, Tuesday evening. He walked out. Fanny watched him to the door. A rage came to her. He was play-acting. He was making fun of her, of her fear of exposure, because he was crazy. He didn't want money. He wanted to bulldoze and torture her. He wanted her to think he was somebody. That's why he did it. She stood up and watched him from the window as he walked down the street. A dapper, good-natured figure, smiling with mysterious condensation upon the houses he passed. She rushed to her room and locked the door. Something would have to happen. She had not talked to Schroeder about Ramsey since he left her in the cab that first day. She would ask him what to do. No, that would make it worse. He might be like Ramsey. She lay dry-eyed and pondering. The thought slowly grew in her. She would tell her brother. George would be able to figure out some way to rid her of this blackmailer. She would tell him everything and explain to him how she couldn't stand it any longer. She lay quietly improvising her conversation with her brother. This brought a relief, and she closed her eyes with a sigh. End of chapter 18 Recording by Roger Moline